If you're at a point where you're confident in building things, that's enough for employers to hire you because they're not just hiring for your skills, they're hiring for your, um, your teachability. Are you teachable? Are you inquisitive? Are you, are you, do you want to learn? That's enough for them to pick you up as a junior and then train you and then pay you to code, basically. Welcome to another episode of the I Love Monday podcast. Today we have a digital nomad and the co-founder of Pivot to Tech, Shoaib Musa. Welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum, bro. Thank you for having Salam. me. No, you're welcome. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah we talked about it. How long has it been? A few weeks ago now? I think so. A few months? Yeah, yeah. A few weeks. Yeah, it's been a bit. So what is Pivot to Tech? So it's a tech uh, bootcamp um, aimed at people who want to change their careers. Um, we've got two courses. The big one is how to be a software engineer or web developer, basically. So most we started with that. Then we changed it to have two, two courses. The second one is how to be a freelancer, do digital marketing, uh, low code web development, because not everyone wants to do, you know, nine to five as an engineer or, you know, a web developer. People want to keep their jobs if they've got kids, family, whatnot, and they probably want to, you know, make some money on the side. And that's kind of how I started the whole tech world. I started with freelancing. My first gig actually was back when I was a radiographer. It was a free job. It wasn't like, it was just um, for practice. And it was a radiographer who was mentoring me. She wanted a website for her photography business. I was like, hey, I'm learning. Why don't I do your website for you? And then that's kind of how it started. Okay. You mentioned you were a radiographer. How did you transition from there to tech? So it started around like I think my third year, my dissertation. When I was in my dissertation, I was in the library. I remember I was watching a YouTube video on this guy. He, his name's Christopher Freelancer. I don't know if you've seen him online. Um, he travels and so he was an accountant before, basically. And then in three months, he learned to code. This is back 2015, 2016. So it, was, it wasn't as difficult to find a job as a developer or even part-time because there wasn't that many, that many people doing it. I think after 2020, there was a massive rise in people trying to learn how to code, right? And then he was, he was doing that. He was going to Bali and Thailand and all these other countries, living the, the digital nomad lifestyle. I was like, okay, this is really cool. Why don't I like, have a look into this more? And then after like a whole, you, you know when you go on the YouTube rabbit, rabbit holes and just watching video after video, I watched like almost, watched almost half his videos. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm in the middle of my dissertation. I can't procrastinate anymore. <laughs> Let me finish this. Because I know I didn't want to do radiography. Like, I didn't really like the way the career progression looks like. I was, you know, going into placement. Anyone who did any medical or healthcare course knows placement takes like 50% or more of your time in uni. And it's all unpaid. So it's a bit miserable sometimes, especially if you don't love the career. So I knew I didn't want to do that. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And it wasn't like... I didn't really know how much money you can make as an engineer, as a developer, software engineer, whatever you want to call it, or anywhere in tech. I just wanted to travel. That was my main reason why I wanted to get into tech. And anything else is a bonus. Um, and then started to learn on, by myself. I watched a few YouTube videos. I started with his videos just on what he did. Then I went on udemy.com, which is like a cheap online course platform. You just buy courses and then you just do it on your own time, basically. There's an, there's an, an instructor, you watch them all, they're all offline and everything. It's not like cohort based, uh, uh, like a bootcamp, because bootcamps are like 
two, three K some of them. And yeah. back then they were even more expensive. Um, so I just did that. And then I think where well, I moved out my very first job as a videographer. I moved out, I lived by myself uh, for around two years in total. But for the first eight months is when I just put my head down and decided that before my contract ends for that job, I moved to Cheltenham. So it was, yeah, near that. And my job was a band five videographer role, but only for a year. So it was a maternity cover, basically. And I told myself, within that one year, I have to learn to code, get a job before I have to look for a new job, basically. <laughs> so it was interesting because within like, how long did it take me? It took me around like eight months, I think. <coughs> eight months from when I first started learning to when I got offered my job. Um, and it was interesting because just before that, like around like the sixth month, the hospital told me that there's an opening for a band five role, a permanent position. Um, if you want to take it, you know, you can interview for it. And I mean, there, there were loads of positions. I knew I would get it if I interviewed for it. Um, but I told myself, you know what? No, I'm not. So I'm gonna, that kind of like put a lot more pressure on me now to get that job by like, like June or something um, in, in tech. And back then I didn't have no like, <clears throat> no offers from any tech, tech companies or anything. But I thought to myself, it's not like it's not that difficult because I, I use this, I use a lot of like YouTubers and Twitter personalities to look at what they did. And back then, um, I used to follow a lot of them. Like self-taught developers were like a thing, and some of them like got roles in six months. One guy used to work in a um, chicken shop, and then um, now he works at Google. So you know, it's that big transition. And I'm like, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, it's not come that difficult. Um, and then, yeah, like eighth month, got the role. I remember tweeting about it as well. And then, yeah, the rest is history, I guess. Why did you decide to go into radiography in the first place? A oh, good question. <laughs> um, it was mostly like I knew it was a stable, because healthcare in general was a very stable like career. Like I got a job, I got offered a job before I finished my degree. It was very, you know, because they need you quick. Like, they, you know, there's a shortage of, Radiographers. That's what they kept telling us anyway <laughs> when I was looking for the role, when I was looking for courses. And then my parents really wanted me to do it as well. Um, funnily enough, actually, my dad told me to do IT. Okay. And I, for some reason, I said, no, no, I'll get a job better as a radiographer. Because I thought it was a lot more physics and tech stuff, like radiography. I thought, you know, because I did, I did radiotherapy, which is, using, um, which is using radiation to treat cancer. Yeah. So not the other one where you like, get broken bones and then you go to the hospital. Um, so yeah, I didn't really think, I just kind of did the course. So you know, when you went to university or before you decided to go, was it more parental pressure or did you want to go? University, I wanted to go because everyone was doing it. And um, back then I didn't really see any options, any other options. I know there were apprenticeships, but they weren't as prominent as they are now. Now I would, I don't like having regrets and obviously you're not really supposed to have regrets really, but I wouldn't, do it if I, if I can go back, basically. I would, I would do IT, obviously. Or I'd do an apprenticeship. I don't think I would have gone into university at all. The way I see it, it's part of your journey. So maybe if you didn't go into university to do radiography, you might have not gone into tech. Yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't have, because it's weird, like the way it turned out, like I actually failed a year as well. So I did, I redid the year. But if I didn't redo a year, I wouldn't have got that job in Cheltenham. And I think getting that job in Cheltenham was very pivotal, like pivotal in my, um, whole journey to this because I moved out and moving out 
you're all on your own, no distractions, all the way up north, like, who even knows, it was such a boring place, <laughs> it was such a boring place, um, there's no one around, no one who looked like me, it was very, like, white area, and, but it allowed me to, to kind of shut off everything, I left my PS4 at home, with my little brother, and it was a, a lot easier to learn, a lot easier to kind of get my stuff together, and you learn a lot by yourself when you're by yourself, when you live by yourself. So what kind of things did you learn? So, a lot of organizations, so I can't rely on anyone but me, like if, you know, um, if, if, I don't, if I don't buy groceries, if I don't do this, if I don't clean this, do that, like, there's no, no, no one else is going to pick up for me, I have to do it myself. But also, because you are alone a lot of the time, I lived with roommates, but it was not roommates, like housemates, but it was, there was a house share, but it was two other guys, and we all had our own separate bathroom and, you know, bedroom and everything. So it was mostly just, we all saw each other in the kitchen here and there. So I would meal prep. Um, I had kind of a lot, a lot to think in terms of just reflecting just on life and where I'm going and everything. And I think if I didn't have like that direction of learning to code, maybe I'd be, be a bit more lost and kind of just doing whatever. But I'd plan out my weeks and literally every pocket of time I'd have, I'd find, I'd dedicate to just learn to code or network and that's it, or gym. When you were living alone, did it teach you a lot of discipline? Yeah, so living alone teaches you a lot about yourself, which then translates to being disciplined. Because the more you know about yourself, the more you realize, you know, your flaws, what you're lazy with, what you're good at, what you're not good at, your communication style, because I had to like um, talk to people a lot more in the hospital and make friends and network and all that. So I, I used to journal a lot back then as well, actually, like, to kind of keep sane because back then it was COVID. And I, at one point, I didn't see my family for like three months. It was lockdown. So I kind of had to keep saying it. And the gyms were closed. Oh, it was not good. Um, but all that kind of helped me to just kind of be obsessed with going, being, going where I want to go, which is, you know, different career, different lifestyle. So, How did you become obsessed? Because when you become obviously obsessed with something, you go after it. Yeah. And you essentially you're chasing it or you work towards a bigger goal. How did you first become obsessed? It probably, I think it goes back to want, wanting to travel. I don't know why, because even before that, I never really traveled as much. I know I wanted to. You know what it is? I think it's not your travel, I think it's just freedom. That's what I think. Because doing that year again, so four years of university, going to placement, not getting paid, I didn't really have a good time in placement. That hospital, I won't name hospital, <laughs> but it wasn't... Um, for students anyway, it wasn't really uh, like good, basically. And the course in general does have a lot of, um, or just healthcare courses in general, because there's so much pressure, right? Like you're looking after sick people all the time and you're a student and you're trying to learn and you can't make a mistake. So it was a lot of pressure. And knowing that after I finish, I'm not gonna be making a lot of money. Like I was, uh, I think my second year, I overheard a conversation with this two radiographers it was like Monday morning and they were like, how was your weekend? And she was like, oh, you know, I'm just calling to pay day. You know, and I'm there thinking like, she's a band seven, yeah, which is like for a senior radiographer. I'm a student. Like, I'm training to be you. Like, <laughs> I don't want to do that, man. Like, it's not, I don't, didn't want to see my life that way. So I think being obsessed came from not wanting that kind of lifestyle, wanting a certain kind of lifestyle for myself. And that lifestyle is being able to just be free. Travel or free? Yeah, just be free. So free to kind of take days off whenever I want to. 
um, not skip you know important things my family uh, my parents later on when I have kids I and mean, that's gonna be even more important so it's better it's better to lay, lay those foundations down now I think um, rather than when they're too busy with kids okay so is it motivation that's pushing you or is it discipline that's pushing you um, or is it both it's, it started with, with motivation and then when I got to a point where like I said I didn't accept that job offer to be a permanent by five then it became discipline because it's like I have to do this otherwise I'm gonna be left behind I'm gonna have to go find a job I'm gonna have to go back to my parents house <laughs> and it's like no 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 like no matter like you know I used to have this thing I still do where I say or I try to wake up early in the mornings. Back then, I would wake up stupid times, like, because my shifts were different every day when I was a radiographer. So sometimes I'd wake up at 5, 5.30 to get even 30 minutes of coding in, whatever it was, because after I'd go to work, then I know I'd be too tired in the evenings. So that's what really helped me. So living alone and waking up early, that helps with discipline. Do you still wake up early? So in the last few weeks, I haven't. I'm gonna be honest, um, mostly because I'm injured and it's affected my gym and energy levels and all that, but I'm trying to go back to it again. But yeah, for the longest time, I've always been an advocate for getting up. I've recently, I've been trying to, after Fajr, just literally stay awake. I've noticed I can do it for two or three days in a week. After that, I need to sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard, you know what it is? Hours. You know what it is? I, I did it for like a year and a half straight consistently. And I realized it's not about going to bed early or waking up early. Your diet and your exercise, that matters, I think, more than anything else. Because if your energy levels are consistent, for example, I don't drink more than one coffee a day, or I try not to anyway, and always before two o'clock. And back when I wasn't injured, I used to go to the gym a lot more, I was just energized. So going to sleep early wasn't an issue, waking up early wasn't an issue. And in the summer, it's easier because the sun rises like early, right? So you get to wake up and not be in dark. Like in the winters, it's so hot in the winter to do it. Like waking up at five in the winter, like you'd have to be like, 6.30 is well. I can't pick up early. I'm the opposite. I find it a lot easier in the winter. Really? How yeah. though? Like it's so, it's so dark, it's miserable, you want to go back to sleep. No, but it's, I can find a routine a lot easier. So if I say look, I need to be up by 5.36, I can wake up every day 5.36. Because the Salah times are the same. Oh, that's true, yeah. You're not going back to bed after budget, yeah. Whereas now it's like, I wake up at 4 one day, but then you've got, you can wake up at 4 the next day, but then, like today I was knackered, so I went uh, to sleep. I oh. didn't get up until... Half seven. Yeah. I mean, that's how still later than me, uh, earlier than me, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think early mornings is prophetic as well, right? Sunnah, right? To yeah. wake up early. Um, it's always blessings of Sunnah. And it's, it just, it makes your day feel a lot longer. That's what I think. I think there's that. And I think in the morning, just naturally, you can get so much more done. Yeah. Because you're more energized in the morning. Exactly. Then you have lunch. No, with whatever they put in the food these days, <laughs> there's an afternoon slump. No, 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 yeah. That's, that's why, so when I, so when I was ready for, we used to tell our patients who were struggling with, with fatigue to eat little and often. Um, I never do big lunches. I hate big lunches because you get tired. You have a slump and then it's just not worth it. You feel like crap, especially if it's not healthy food. So <clears throat> I never see breakfast. I used to have a shake. I used to eat about a while ago. A shake with like, must be like eight, 900 calories. But I drank that and then I wouldn't need to eat until like three o'clock. And then from there, I just eat little and often it's healthy, not even snacks, but like small portions of food. Um, then you just don't feel tired. It, it, it really works. Okay, that's interesting. I'll send you the video, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah, please do. It's a good video. 
So let's talk about your tech. So what exactly do you do? So at the moment, uh, I run a digital agency. So we do web, web development, um, SEO, email marketing, and paid ads. Um, before that, I used to have an agency. Well, it was still the same agency, but it was just websites only and e-commerce. So I did a lot of like Shopify things um, and then slowly transitioned now into just like digital marketing work and websites if and when needed. Um, and then how I got into that was just, again, freelancing from a while ago. But I did have a job. So when I obviously landed my tech job, that was web development, but it was web app. So it was web apps, web apps as well. So software engineering, um, front-end web development is the actual title. Um, and so yeah, basically it's like, you know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, um, React. That's pretty much all. I did it for a while. Um, then slowly transitioned into like SEO, learning more about digital marketing. That's how I grew Pivotal Tech, the, the bootcamp, um, because social media and email marketing and all these sorts of things, you kind of need to not only know them, but apply them, whether it's in your own business, whether it's freelancing, then it becomes a lot easier. Like it's all just algorithm based or, you know, but learning to code, that's like, you need a job basically. Like you can't just code for other people all the time. Like having a job teaches you a lot more. So how long did it take you to learn to code? Eight months. It well, it took me like four or five months to learn fully, but then it was the job searching aspect was like a few months as well. So can someone have no experience and start? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm from a non-tech background. A lot of our students are, most of our students are from non-tech backgrounds, I think. Um, because, you know, you don't need a degree for it. You don't need any special kind of qualifications. Tech is big nowadays, you know, like everything is run by tech. So employers don't have the time or patience to try and figure out who's on a degree. And it doesn't actually matter. If you can do it, if you can build what they want you to build, if you can, especially as a junior reader, as a junior developer, if you're at a point where you're confident in building things, that's enough for employers to hire you because they're not just hiring for your skills, they're hiring for your, um, your teachability. Are you teachable? Are you inquisitive? Are you, are you, do you want to learn? That's enough for them to pick you up as a junior and then train you and then pay to code, basically. I find that if a person does go into tech, naturally they're going to be teachable because it's such a new industry. Yeah. yeah it's not like, for example, accounting where you've got 60, 70 year olds retiring in their firms and it's the same principles they've applied for the last 50 years. Tech is new. And when you go into tech, I think you go into it knowing that it's constantly changing. It is. Yeah. It was always changing. It's too much, especially with AI. Like it's ridiculous. Like since November or October, ChatGPT released. And then since then it's is ridiculous and that's also a new area you know um who knows maybe one day i'll release an ai bootcamp. <laughs> um but yeah you always need to be learning you always need to find ways to um keep things fresh the way i said like the way i always tell people to do that and the way i did it when i was learning and the way i got told was to build projects so i remember when i was looking for my second job um i got a i was doing a i was building an app like a web app on, on the NBA. So the idea is you kind of look at different teams, you, you search for a team or a player, and then a chart pops up on what they, on, on their stats, how many points, how many assists, all that sort of stuff, um, the MVPs, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I used what I learned from my first job to build that. And then that actually, that project alone got me my second job. 
I managed to kind of like skip the technical test, uh, they call it, just by saying, hey, uh, like I know you, you probably got a test lined up for me, but why don't I just show you this uh, app I made so I can walk you through the code, walk you through my thinking, my, my thinking, that's what they want, right? They want to see how you think when they're hiring you. And then I got a job the next day, um, just from building. Can AI write your code for you? Uh, yeah, but you need to prompt it. So you can tell it what to write. So people always think, oh, you know, what's the point of us anymore if AI is going to, but you need to prompt the AI very specific things. You can, like, it can build really simple example. things. You can build a really simple, like a to-do app. If uh, I can say right now, like, give me the code to write a you know, to-do app in JavaScript. It'll give you that code. It might not be all working. Um, and if it is, you know, you may want to make some changes. It'll give you that framework. So as, as developers, it kind of makes us, like, it kind of superpowers us. Basically, makes you do something you can do in a few hours to... Yeah, literally, in a few lines, if you, like, I can write... I use it mostly now for my client work, for, like, um, SEO or email marketing. Um, if I don't have someone to write things for me or if I want to change someone that someone else wrote, I can just put it into, into ChatGPT. Some of my tweets are actually from ChatGPT. So. Which ones? Um, one I'm releasing today is a, well, is a thread. So I get it to write the skeleton and then I just change a few things. I've done that once. Yeah, it's and useful, isn't it? It's useful because a newspaper asked for just some comments on something. I literally, whatever they asked for, I think it was a report on house price statistics. Yeah. So I copied and, pra- I copied and pasted the, the report, uh, just a link to it, and I just said, could you summarize this? Yeah, yeah, it and I literally does it really sent it to well. a newspaper yeah, yeah. and they published it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they could have done it themselves as well, right? Yeah. They could have done it themselves. Um, no, yeah, AI is sick, man. I mean, that's just ChatGPT's only one. Like, there's so many other ones. A couple, like, there's a couple that I use for my workflow. One specifically for writing, it's called Write Sonic. Okay. Really good. Um, it uses the ChatGPT, you know, OpenAI backend, but, or algorithm-ish, for, for writers, for if you want to do blogs, copywriting for a website, newspapers, whatever. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize, I think people, it was nice in the beginning when it first came out, people used to make jokes of it, like made the right jokes and whatnot, but now it can, it can literally make someone redundant, basically, um, if they're not keeping up. It's the same with social media. When it first came out, people just used to, used it to connect with friends. Now, people use it as a full-on marketing tool. Now, it's just media. I don't think, like, so the, the social has been taken out of the media, I feel like. You know, like TikTok, is that, is that really social media? Yeah. TikTok it's just media. Videos, yeah. Yeah, 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 but people still call it social media. People don't really connect anymore. Like, I think we're very, we're a lot more disconnected than ever, even with, you know, the ability to text your mom in two seconds from WhatsApp or whatever. Back then, you had to, like, you know, pick up a phone, before then, send a letter, whatever. But back then, they were a lot more connected. So how does that work? It's, I think it's because face-to-face, people struggle to find the connection. Yeah. Um, because if people have spent 80% of their time on social media speaking to people, they don't know how to speak face-to-face. That's why it's still going to networking events, yeah, yeah. meeting people for coffee, all of that is yeah, really yeah. important. It's still, it's still crucial. Um, that's why like, when I try to talk to people, I tend not to text. I prefer calls, FaceTime, whatever emulates the real-life experience um, because when you message people, a lot of things can be lost in translation because you can't really know someone's tone from a message. Voice note, I do that as well. People are sick of it, like three, four minute voice notes um, or mini podcasts, I call them. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, you're right. It's, 
a lot of networking events nowadays make things a lot easier, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of artificial intelligence, what are the dangers of it that you've seen? You know, the guy who made OpenAI, I think he recently went to Congress or whatever, said that, you know, kind of made a statement how it is dangerous and there needs to be regulators. The ironic thing about regulators is it can't, it's difficult, you can't regulate something like this. We'll just keep learning. Yeah. We'll keep learning and finding, finding ways. So, you know, it is a bit scary because I did, I'm not sure if it's true or not, so don't quote me on this. It could be fake news, but I don't know if you heard, there was like a, they tested it on a drone or something. Like the pilot told the drone to attack something and the drone attacked the pilot uh, because it was getting in his way. <laughs> um, so that tried to kill the pilot. So again, I'm not sure if it's true, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it is true. Um, so it can't be very I think Mo Gorda, I think he used to work at Google, he's Mo Gorda. He, he's with Stephen Bartlett now. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, but he did a podcast with him yeah. and he was saying that AI's IQ right now is 160, but that can 10x so quickly that AI will become much more smarter than a human. But the, he goes, the problems won't be the AI, the problem will be how the human uses AI. That is true. Like with any te technology, it is about human input. You, know, you can't, AI can't, do, AI can't do anything unless you prompt it. Yeah. But the issue becomes when it's, when it's machine learning and when it um, teaches itself. I'm not really that knowledgeable in all of this, but I'm thinking like, I worry about stuff, you know, <laughs> later on, um, especially when they actually make, um, you know, there was, you know, the, like Alexa and all of them, yeah. stuff like that. So if that kind of, if they make a robotic version, cause it's not difficult to do that. They already have done that sort of stuff. But we've seen f over the last, what, 20 odd years, that machinery and tech is taken over. Like if you go to Tesco's, they've got the self-checkouts. Yeah, That's been taken over for a long is, time. Yeah, yeah. Now it's more, it's just become much more prominent and it's taken over skilled people's jobs. Yeah, it's, I think it's interesting because the people who are going to stay in jobs are the ones who keep up to date with this kind of news and learn. And the ones that are in other professions, you know, that don't, that don't really rely on tech that much, like construction and all of that sort of stuff. But even in property, we don't rely on tech as much because we're still a field industry yeah, it's all in person right yeah yeah it's still in person but mm. it's for us it's about using tech using data using as a tool yeah tech to analyze data to then propel us to another level oh data is big yeah yeah i think data is what helped me a lot with my business both for my clients for me especially with things like seo email marketing um that's why i've niched onto that more because i mean it makes a lot more. i think that like for example like you can have a website but not having traffic so yeah. what's the point? I, I got really bored to make websites that I don't know how people are going to use, if it even makes them money, if it makes me money. But having, using data to change sort of like different things like A-B split test on emails, um, ranking on um, certain sites, so not just Google, the, um, you know, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, search and data in general, it's massive. I mean, they use it in anything. They use it in advertisements. You know, they use it to give us, show us certain ads that we, you know, that we might like. You know, there's there's a saying that you know, they apps like TikTok know, like know us more than we know ourselves. Yeah, and it's true, man. It's true. It's it's like they say the when you speak about something, all of a sudden it just comes on your phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think like, I mean, maybe they are using the mics or whatnot, but I think it's more of um like. When you're scrolling TikTok, you get to a, 
a, a stage where you're just doing it subconsciously. Yeah. Not even just anything. It's not just TikTok, sorry. I think it's a lot of infinite scrolling. You know, when that was first invented, um, they can just track like hundreds of thousands, millions of data points. And then from there, it's just so easy to find out who you are. They have different profiles of us, all that. This is why I hate TikTok. <laughs> the thing with data at the moment, I think is a massive money-making machine. For example, you've got these Tesco as the club cards. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they literally sell our shopping styles to Cambridge Analytica or whoever else for a huge amount of monies for them to then look at how we can or how they can analyze us for, especially like elections and... Everything, man. Yeah, yeah. Data's everywhere. It's, uh, it's good if you know how to leverage it, right? So, for example, when I'm marketing for the bootcamp, I would look for tech influencers on TikTok and Instagram um, that can make a reel for us or a video for us and shout us out, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I'd look at their analytics, I'd ask for their impressions and, you know, how many views they get, how many, you know, which countries are the, are the, are the, are the audience in, loads of different things, right? So they'd give me, they'd send me a PDF. These are the ones that are used to, like, working with companies. Um, they're not cheap, though. Like, it's, it's really annoying how, because there's, There'll be a, I don't know, like a like a influencer with like fifty thousand followers, and she'd say like a thousand pounds for a reel, basically, um, or you know someone with. So I mean, it's again like a lot of it is not really it's not official, so like you can't negotiate and whatnot, and then it doesn't really matter. But um, that's the thing where I think if you got a high ticket item, selling them, or um, promoting or marketing or through an influencer makes sense because you can get you know ROI is a lot easier. You can just make money back, right? Um, but yeah, so I look at the data, I look at what, you know, how many users they've got, or not users, audience, things like that. Um, and from there, it will just be easier to make a decision. So it just, it's easy, data is just really used just to make choices that drive revenue, basically. I want to talk to you about your pivot to tech bootcamp. Why did you decide to start it? So we started it because I would get a lot of DMs, too many, on why, to, you know, how did you transition from radiography? I tweet about it a lot. So I already built an audience who kind of knew me from my radiography days and then built some audience just on, on Twitter mostly and Instagram a little bit. Um, and now, up to now, I think when I started the bootcamp, it was like, I had like three and a half, maybe 3,000 followers, I think, on Twitter. Um, and then it wasn't gonna be a, a big thing. Eventually, it was a bit of an accident. Um, I just put out a Google form. I asked everyone, would you be interested in a um, part-time coding bootcamp? I think that's how I worded it. And then like within two days, we got like 500 signups, just like emails and um, which course they wanted and whatnot. And then we started with like 20 pound a month, you know, for three months, whatever, right? We didn't even know what to price it. We thought just to kind of see demands. And there was a lot of demands, man. There was a lot of demands. So we're like, okay, this could be a thing. Um, and then as we, you know, started teaching people and because my co-founder, he was doing it before, before I did this. So he but was doing it for free. So he was teaching around 10 people a day, every day for a few months, the same 10 people. Um, and then he managed to get a few of them jobs. Um, and then I was like, so then he messaged me, asked me to like, do like a guest lecture kind of thing on one, on one of these sessions. I was like, yeah, cool. Sure. That's, that's cool. And then um, I did that. It was really cool. Like. It was like it was quite engaging because they asked me questions about my journey and all that sort of stuff, and I could see they were really like willing to learn and they were excited about, you know, um, 
this industry. And then when I finished that session, I called my friend and I told him, listen, you've got a business here. Like you've got something you could really take big. And then, you know, that's when I did the whole form. And then we kind of started with 20 pound a month. And then, yeah, the rest kind of grew by itself. So what, what would people get for 20 pound a month at that time? So back then it was, it was a whole thing. Really. It was still 13 weeks of the bootcamp. So it was 20 pound a month for three months because it was a 13 week bootcamp. Um, so you'd get, um, it was two days a week um, sessions of teaching through Zoom. And it will be um, like homework and projects and things like that. Our main emphasis was by the end of the bootcamp, you complete your portfolio of three projects. But that's the only way really you'd be able to show employers that you can code and get a job. A CV alone isn't going to cut it. I know plenty of um, computer science graduates who do a course, who do the degree, but don't have much on their portfolio or a portfolio at all. And then they wouldn't get a job or they find it very hard to get a job. So our main emphasis was to do what I did and what worked for me and many others who were self-taught to build projects. So that's our main call, uh, main emphasis. And then um, uh, it would be back then when it wasn't as big, the groups, we'd have like a lot more one-to-one sessions um, almost daily. Um, but now as we grow, or well, even like back in December, as we grew a lot more, um, it would be like here and there, we do one-to-one sessions. People who are nearing finishing their portfolios, we'd help them get, get over the line. And it became almost like mentoring as well. What were some of your success stories from, from that in terms of getting people into a good job? So one that would always come to mind is uh, um, she was a mother and she landed a role after the bootcamp. It was a few months after the bootcamp, so it wasn't straight away. Obviously it takes time for jobs and applications. Um, she landed a junior role for 40K. And as a junior, that, that was more than I was when I first started uh, in my first role. So that was the highlight, I think, of the whole, I think it's on the website somewhere. Um, and then nowadays, we're getting a lot more students who are landing clients because we teach dig- digital marketing, right? And freelance web development. Because like I said, not everybody, not everybody wants to switch their careers completely. They want like earn a side income, learn a new skill. So um, one girl, she was juggling three clients at one time two months after the bootcamp finished and I was really shocked. I was like, I don't even, I don't even, I don't even like recommend that. That's two, three at one time is not really the best thing to do. But when you're learning, you know, it's, it's good because it kind of teaches you to really think on your feet, prioritize. And uh, so, yeah, I think the freelance students always have a special place in my heart because I do it. And it's, I know how it feels like, you know, getting paid to do something that's, you know, really not that difficult to learn. So why freelance rather than a normal job? Because most people, when they look at a bootcamp, they think, okay, I'm going to have to change my whole career. It's going to be daunting. It's months and months of learning. Um, but a lot of people, they want to, I mean, there's two reasons, I think. So mostly because they don't want to change their whole career right away, even if they do later on. And the second reason is they want to travel more and maybe even leave the country and move somewhere, have that freedom in their lives where they're not you know, tied to one source of income where you know, we've seen the cost of living crisis, having one source of income, I don't think it's sustainable for most people. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? So having something else, even if it's a few, a few, a few hundred pounds extra a month, that could be a big difference between you know, paying bills, groceries, whatever. So it's, it's worth it. So when, you, when a student comes to you, what kind of advice do you give them? So when they... As in when they sign up for the course, when they want to sign up for the course? When they've signed up or when they're planning to sign up. 
So a lot of the questions come from before the sign-up because naturally if someone wants to buy something, they want to ask a lot of questions. So the most asked question I get probably about the course is, do I need any past experience? That's always the biggest question. Um, and you know, I'm living proof you don't need any past experience. It is for beginners. Um, and I think people ask that because it looks confusing. You know, when you look at a, a page of code, it looks like gibberish, right? So it's the job of anyone teaching to make it more simple. Um, we've got the saying in uh, the software engineering world, um, KISS, keep it simple, stupid, K-I-S-S. Um, so keep it as simple as possible from the very beginning. So we, you know, we don't go right into it away with the code. We talk about theory first. We talk about how computers work how software in general works and really, really break it down. The more you break down a problem, the easier and the more digestible it is. I think this is why a lot of, like now in society, short form content is very common, right? Like everyone's doing it because it's easily digestible. I don't completely agree with it like long-term because things can get lost in translation, context is missing. But when it comes to learning, keeping it short, like Duolingo for example, every day, 10 minutes a day, you learn a new language. I use it, it helps. So keeping it simple. Okay. And what's the kind of reservations you've had from students to go into tech? As in people who don't, who are like hesitant? Yeah. As in you must have had people who are like pushed back and saying, it's not for me because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. So because of it's a sort of, because it's a bootcamp, a lot of it is time and because they think, you know, it takes too long to learn or like they don't have time to attend those two sessions. So it's like four to six hours a week we do the sessions, but it's all recorded. So it's, you can learn your own time, you can buy the course, learn your own time, or follow, obviously we do recommend you follow along on the, on the sessions, but we do have like dropping sessions throughout the week. Um, but in terms of people having reservations in getting into code in general, whether it's my course, another course, any other course, the industry, I think it's lack of knowledge and being overwhelmed by choices because they're, Coding is just one aspect of tech, right? There are, you know, there's um, product management, uh, there's cybersecurity, there's DevOps, business analysts. There's just a lot, a lot of people don't know about that. So it's kind of finding one place to learn everything, right? Or picking one thing and learning and kind of sticking through it. People, like a lot of people, me included, when I first started, um, they uh, thought, okay, let's learn this. Okay, this is boring or this might, might not be hard. Um, might be hard or let's learn this or let's learn that or you know it becomes very like the lines become blurred and because like what, why are you trying to even do it in the first place like are you trying to do it because you want you like it or is it because of, your, of the money or the benefits or you know whatever so finding your north star i think that's makes it a lot easier for people to you always to recommend for people to find their niche yeah always from the very beginning find out what you want and which is why i write blogs on the website on the difference between the two, or not just two, but the main different types of um, roles within tech, so they can find out more about it. I always tell people when I first um, started the bootcamp, is my course is one of many. You know, there's YouTube, there's Udemy, um, there's uh, Skillshare. But I think first thing anyone should do is, like what I used to do was watch these videos on YouTube, like day in the life of software engineer, because I wanted to know what they actually do day to day not just the title, not the money, not the lifestyle, what you actually do day to day because your life is comprised of days and weeks, right? So, so what do you do day to day? So, <laughs> good question. But 
I, mean, I don't do that now. Obviously, I um, I've got this agency. But when I was a junior developer, I keep saying that junior developer. So you wake up in the morning, you do your thing, you go to work, whether it's remote or in office. Um, first thing, you have a daily stand up. So you just have a meeting, what you did before um, on Friday, or you know what you, what the tasks you're going to do ahead. From there, um, you probably tackle a task, right? So let's say if it's a certain component on a website or an app, you do that. So a lot of it during the, like, maybe between like 11 and two or three, you work alone, or you are doing you know, maybe pair, pair programming with, with somebody, a lot of meetings here and again. So it's not too different from a regular corporate role, but you are building constantly. So you are always learning. You always feel like you're not, you know, um, is 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 difficult to be comfortable basically in one role, because if, once you do get comfortable in one role for for a long enough time, you're gonna feel stagnant. So constantly learning is why I like this career in general because you learn new things and it's interesting. Like you build, and you know, makes everybody money. <laughs> but how, how is your life now, day to day? Because you mentioned earlier, you can literally wake up whenever, uh, or you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. You have that freedom of time. Yeah, exactly. To a certain extent. Sorry? To a certain extent. Yeah, to a certain extent. Um, obviously, I've got my responsibilities to my clients. I can't do whatever. Um, but whenever um, I can work like where I want, for example, um, I travel a lot. I like to work in different countries um, or even different areas in London. Um, because I'm not like work from home isn't work from home for me is work from anywhere. So yeah. I prefer that, and time as well, right? So I don't think the nine to five is very sustainable to a lot of people. I think even in general, I think it's very outdated. Forty hours a week, um, nine to five, Monday to Friday. Um, that's why they're doing this four day work week, right? Like they're trying to trial that. But I don't think this country is gonna, you know, pick it up forever. <laughs> I don't think anyone's gonna. I think. Companies are too scared to pick it up. I think the best work, the best work day is you're working from like seven to one and then you've got the rest of the day to yourself. Seven's early, man. Nah, but if seven. you're in a routine like that and yeah, the whole yeah. country's in a routine like that. Yeah. I used to be seven to three actually. two hours earlier yeah. than nine o'clock. That's true, actually. Yeah. And you'll get more done between seven and one than nine to five. 100%. I think by nine o'clock, your stomach's rumbling, your anticipating meetings and people talk to them. Nine o'clock is a bad time to start. Either start late in the day 11 or something, or start at eight. I think nine o'clock is a, hard, is a weird time. But like I said, it's over, it's over is um, outdated because you know of the industrial revolution when it first started, we never moved on from that. But there are companies now who do like five, six hour, six hour work days, Monday to Friday or Monday to Thursday, and their employees are like, uh, you know, a lot more productive and happy, which is more important, right? Um, but in terms of me, um, my schedule varies depending on what I'm doing. So either it's Pivot Tech or the agency. So when we're in the middle of a cohort, I'm not doing any marketing. So it's a lot easier for me just to focus on teaching and client work. When I'm in the middle of a marketing campaign, like we are right now, the, the course closes. By the time this comes out, I think it will be closed by then anyway, on Thursday. Um, so we're just busy trying to get you know people onboarding, or marketing, emails, whatever. Um, and then there's the other side of the coin, which is agency work, client work, things like that. Um, my day-to-day -day varies between Pivot Tech and the agency, basically. So how do you manage in different time zones? 
Oh, time zones? Um, oh man, when I was in Saudi, it was difficult. Yeah, it was hard because it was Ramadan as well. So I would like really start work at five, do a bit of work. And then when it was like Maghrib, you know, break my fast, eat, and then work between like one and like four or something. <laughs> like it was nuts. But the other places I was long term was in Morocco. I was there for a month and the same time zone. So I don't have an issue with that. Like that's why I liked it. It was easy. Uh, same time zone as UK, uh, Portugal same time zone as UK. Um, I don't I don't do that on purpose. I just by luck it's the same time. Um, but that's why I haven't been to like countries like Thailand, Bali, and a lot of these digital nomads go. I really want to like that's why I started this whole thing. I'm like I want to be in Bali, um, but it's just way too far. The time zones are crazy. But you you stay like three four weeks at a time in different countries, isn't it? Yeah. So September I was in Morocco for a month. Um, and actually that was when I was still working for a company back then. I was an employee and um, I got let go actually when I was there. So my, imagine, so I didn't tell them I was in Morocco. I was, it was a remote role, but it was a fintech company. Back then there were quite a lot of tech layoffs and they were losing money and they were like, okay, you know, we're getting rid of people. And I was next on the block. And then since then, I remember I was sitting on a terrace in Marrakech, a place called Esawira, very nice. Like you should, everyone goes to Marrakech, it's boring Marrakech. There are other places in Morocco. So I was there and then I got the call. But when I got the call, I wasn't like upset or annoyed. I was actually happy. Like I was like, okay, because Pivot Tech, the bootcamp just started, like it just started, it started to like come about and it was, you know, it was working basically. And the agency thing was kind of taken off. So I kind of needed an excuse not to, you know, work Monday to Friday, right? But it was still very scary because, okay, now what? Like, am I going to be broken two months' time? Like, so it was, it was a weird thing, but alhamdulillah, like, it worked out. Since then, I never went back to a full-time job. Um, so Morocco was one place, then it was Portugal. I wasn't in Portugal for that long. Um, my last place I was there, the last place I was there long-term was Jeddah. I was Saudi, so in Umrah and just being in Saudi. Okay. Um you tweeted something, I think it was today, about productivity. Yeah, probably. How, <laughs> along the lines of, instead of trying to figure out how to be productive, that makes you more unproductive. Yeah, I think it was last night. It was, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so productivity is, I think I used to tweet about it a lot more than I do nowadays. Um, when I first started with, the, with that blog, I used to write about productivity, mindfulness, um, but productivity is weird because I'm reading this book, it's called 4,000 Weeks, right? And it's a guy that talks about um, you can be as productive as you want, you know, we can have all these things that to save us all this time, all this technology, but it still feels like time is running away from us. We still feel anxious, we still feel like we're not doing enough, we still feel empty just by trying to fit so much in, even, even though we have all these things to make us more time, like to free us up. Um, so, yeah, that was, I think that's, that, that was where that tweet came about, just from the book. And I used to have this toxic relationship with productivity where I think, okay, as long as I pack my whole day full of things, get everything done, big to-do list, because I used to get happy. You know, when you, like, you just like, you tick off every task you do, you know, you feel like you get a burst of dopamine or whatever, um, but it doesn't work that way. You just end up with a bigger list, you know? So like, what's the point? So... I got this idea from this other book, was, um, Make Time, it's called, by these two guys that used to work in big tech. And the idea was, um, 
have three things in your to-do list maximum. And they don't have to be work things. They could be life things as well, life admin, family, religion, whatever. Keep it those three tasks. Since I started doing that, it's still difficult to to keep it at three because like it's always tempted to add one more thing because you don't know how long something takes. Like, okay, I need to email this one person, you know, let me add that, add that to the list. Those things could be gripped up, bulk tasks. Like, um, for example, if you've got a bunch of calls or if you've got a bunch of meetings you got to do, have, try and bulk them all in one day. Then you can just take them all off, done. Rather than space out throughout the week because things get crazy hectic, you know, like, I, mean, I was late today, right? So, <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, listen to an audio book called Indistractable and it's about being more productive. It's about not becoming distra- not becoming distracted. Yeah, which is very difficult nowadays. And yeah. he says that to-do lists are the worst thing. He goes, rather than to-do lists, yeah. time block. Time block, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do both. Um, I do to-do lists because it's just something that I can just put down really quickly. But time blocking, I said this before, I think, about... Um, every Sunday, block out, like uh, make your schedule for the whole week. And by that, yeah, it means basically time blocking because, I mean, the thing is with, with time blocking, things come by very easily. So you can block a certain time for something, and then you can have an emergency, something, you know, your family member or other work things. So time blocking, it works in theory, but sometimes it can be very hectic. With, with, I think with time blocking, or what I've found anyway as running a business is, only pack out three to four hours of your day. Yeah. Because the rest of the three hours, other things will come. Unpredictable, yeah, exactly. Whether it's a phone call, whether it's an email you need to um, respond to, whether it's my team. Like today, I literally had back-to-back until about until about half three, I had back-to-back. All meetings? All meetings. Oh. And then as soon as that 3.30 finished, yeah. One by one, everyone just walked into my office. <laughs> yeah, because they know you're free. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Um, I think time blocking also makes a lot of sense when you block to a certain uh, periods of time uh, at the extreme hours of, of the day. So evening, late in the evenings or early in the morning. Ideally, early in the mornings, um, like we talked about, the mornings are better. Um, because then you know, okay, in those, like let's say seven to nine, or what's more reasonable, like, Seven to half eight because now you start work, right? Seven to half eight, you pack that you you know you you um, block a time for one thing only. Once that's done, even if you haven't finished the task, just go and because you need to get ready for work or other responsibilities. So yeah, it works. What's the book called? Industry. Industry. I'm gonna check it out. Um, what's your proudest moment so far? My proudest moment, probably. Probably not going back, not needing to go back to a job since leaving in September. Um, that's what I can remember. There's probably other things I should think about. I, I want to ask you, how did your parents react when <laughs> you said you're leaving your job at NHS? They didn't then... know. They didn't know. No, no, no. Oh, the NHS, yeah, NHS, they, they knew, but they didn't think I was serious about it. So they were like, no, Shuaib, stay in, you know, stay in, stay in healthcare, it's more secure, don't leave, you won't get a job, you don't have a degree. They kept saying that, they kept saying that, no degree. And that was funny because that fueled me more. I'm like, okay, fine, you don't think I'm going to do it? Watch, I'm going to do it. And then when I did it, they were like, oh, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> oh, that was funny though. And about now funny. when you left your 
last role. Yeah, so that's what they didn't know about. Um, I just acted like I had a job because I was still making money from the boot camp or from the agency. So they didn't really know. They don't need to know. Uh, that's the way I like to put it. Um, so I think they did. They found them. Found them. I told them. They found out in September. Not September. Like December, January ish. Because um, you know I'm not logging into work every day. I'm doing whatever. So like, where, where are you going? What's this? Like, have you not got a job now? So yeah, but it was it was good because. I'd rather, for things like that, I'd rather like ask for forgiveness than ask for permission, you know? Just in case you're not able to do it. Yeah, in case I get broke, I'm like, I'm sorry, I have to look for a job now. Because with being an entrepreneur or being in business in general, it's really difficult to, it's, a lot of it is like, you get anxious a lot because you don't know when, you know, if, if you're going to make money next month, if things are going to work out, if you're going to completely crash and burn. But the way I like to see it is, I kind of calculate or imagine the, what the worst case scenario would be. And if I can handle the worst case scenario, I might as well do it, right? And the worst case scenario I thought of was be completely broke, go back to, live, go back to living with my parents. That's not too bad. I'm not going to be homeless. I'm not going to be dead on the street. I'll be fine, right? So if that's, that's the worst case scenario, anything else, anything better than that is great. I can, I can just continue. How often do you actually think about the worst case scenario? Not as much as I used to. So when I was, I used to think about it a lot when I was leaving the NHS. So I used to have major imposter syndrome when I first got my first tech job as a junior. I was like, what am I doing here, man? Like, I'm not, you know, I haven't got a degree. I'm told myself it was very, those times were tough, you know, and especially being the most junior person on the team, you know, learning everything on the fly. I was still learning on the weekends so I can, you know, because we're using a new, they were using a different like, language. I wasn't used to like a, a different programming language, um, so it was a bit difficult to um, to pick things up. Um, but uh, but yeah, nowadays I don't really get as anxious. I just you know trust Allah. You know, I just if anything happens, I know there were lessons from it. I will, I will know later in the future, maybe not now, but um, otherwise keep going. But do you feel stress or anxiety regularly? Uh, not really. No, um, I only do when I'm when I when I'm working too much. That's when, so when I was in, so just before September, when I had that job, when I got let go from that job, um, I was actually feeling quite anxious back then. I wasn't really sleeping that well because I was, I was doing too much. I was, you know, nine to five, one to Friday with that job. And again, I was the most senior person. There was obviously all of our senior engineers. And because it was a startup, they were, they were worried about if they were to survive as a startup. So then there was a lot of pressure on me to make sure that we, you know, hit our targets, um, you know, build when we said we'll build and all that sort of stuff. And also, you know, start the bootcamp. Also, you know, my responsibility to my clients. So that's, yeah, I was very, very anxious then. I was, I felt a massive weight off my shoulders when I got let go. So how, how do you feel now in terms of like mental health in terms not in terms of like deep mental health, but more business related, like on a week to week or month to month. Yeah, alhamdulillah, like, yeah, not bad, not bad. Um, things are going well. Um, just as long as I just keep going, I'm not really worried about much. Like I always tell, I always tell myself like, if things happen with the business, either of the two businesses, I've built enough experience now, I can get a pretty decent job, I'm sure. You know, like, I'm not really worried about that. So that's why, yeah, again, so I guess I do think about the worst case scenario. <laughs> um, but not often, it's more of like, okay, if things don't work out, I know oh, something else will work out. Because with my whole, like my whole tech career, there's, there's always been 
things that have happened that I didn't realize, like things that, that have happened that I wouldn't think have happened in a in good way. So like opportunities, clients, this new business, the bootcamp, anything. So, you know. The thing with businesses, we've been, well, I have anyway, been taught in schools when we were younger that businesses have 10% chance of succeeding. 90% yeah, of the always say, yeah, your first business will fail and all of that, but I don't know. But, and I think there is a lot of times where businesses are living month to month, especially in the early oh, stages yeah, yeah. before yeah. building up client base, cash flow and everything. But at the same time, even when you get so big, even like the banks, for example, they crashed. And it, there's, I don't think there's a level or such a high, you can you're, get you're to never such a high level. You're never going to yeah. be safe. And it's easy to crash and burn. Yeah. And there was the people on this podcast who've said their businesses have just all of a sudden, overnight, they've not looked after certain parts of the business and it's just crashed to the ground. And a lot of other people. But it's, I think for us as Muslims, we have a benefit and advantage that we, we believe that our risk is written anyway. Exactly. So, yeah. and we believe in hope and we believe in praying and a lot of things we believe in can resonate and make your faith stronger. So even if this month you're looking at next month's forecast and you, there's not enough money to pay the bills, something will happen. And I've seen that firsthand with me. I remember once, I've, I think I've said this before, we had a 30 grand VAT bill to pay and I didn't have money in the account. And mm. I was thinking, how is that money going to come in the next, literally the next few days, an invoice which was meant to be paid monthly got paid in a year. All in one go. All in one go. MashaAllah. And, and then from there, there, yeah. It comes from, yeah, yeah, exactly. It comes from, it comes from anywhere. As long as you have that hope, you make consistent dua, tahajjud, and then, you know, the night prayer never fails, never misses, you know. Um, then you'll be fine. Like, because, yeah. you know, really, I think sometimes we're too calculating in what we do. We think it's us that do things, you know. I did this, I built this, I made this much money. It's never you. Like, it's, you're just a vessel, you know. And I think also it's, we have to understand that we can't have control over everything. Yeah. Barely we can't anything. control can't over across the road. Yeah, yeah, we don't, we, uh, yeah. But we have to think we do because otherwise we'll go insane, you know. <laughs> it's, it's psychology. It's, uh, but it, I think that comes with confidence as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you show you're confident, then especially in the sales page, it'll get you a lot further than if you start saying, I'm in an R ring or I think... Like if we go, yeah, we think we can sell this house. Oh, that, compared yeah. to yes, we will sell it at this price. We think is yeah, that's to take that out of your vocabulary. Even I struggle sometimes because I'm like, okay, I'm making a promise. Cause I don't like making false, false promises. So like I'm making a promise, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, can I actually do that? I'm sure I can, but then you, the minute you say, I think you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> like they just think you don't have confidence. It's true, 100%. What's next for Shahid? What's next? Um, I've said this a million times, but I. Ideally, I want to leave the UK. Might not be permanent leave, but I want to be here like three months of the year, four months. That's it, you know. Um, the summer's nice. <laughs> the summer in, in, in London, I'm not gonna lie, it's not too bad, right? Some people hate it though. Like, how do you, how do you feel about summer in here? I, I'm a winter person. The winter person. I don't. I I, I definitely get like. Um, I think it's called the uh, seasonal anxiety, depression, or something like that, where you're like. Or the, or the lack of sun makes you sad because it's true I get that a lot I just don't I'm much more I feel much more happy when I see the sun um, so that's probably why I'm more of a summer, of a summer person um, but yeah so 
in the future and in the future. I don't have like a five, 10 year goal, mostly because of this, of this bootcamp, because it started off as, as an accident. With the agency, I did have a goal and I still do. I want to grow it, I want to scale it. Um, but the bootcamp complicates things now, <laughs> you know, um, mostly because with the course business, um, you have quite high margins naturally. So it's, you know, it makes sense to kind of go towards a business which is easier for your bottom line, basically, right? Um, and also, I don't want to just do business just for the sake of doing business. I want to have an impact. You know, the feeling of get, get, getting someone a job or paying client for our students is completely unmatched. It feels better than, you know, landing a good client because I knew how that feeling was like. I, I felt like that when I first got my job. So impact is huge. Um, so the future, who knows where I'll take, um, where, where, I'll, where I'll go. Um, physically, I do want to leave this place and <laughs> the UK in general. So physically, I know where I'm, I want to go. Um, but with the business and with, with my life, you know, it's maybe get married, you know. That's the most asked question on your... Yeah, days, man. Oh, my days. That. Yeah, people have no shame, man. It's the same question over and over. You know what it is? I don't help them because I sometimes tweet about it. And I put that... You saw this, uh, the tweet recently. Um, that was an experiment, by the way. You know the tweet about why do you think Muslims struggle to get married? That was an experiment. So I put that on my Discord um, with I have, I have a few friends just like trying like, is it more of an accountability group? And I said, okay, I'm going to do this experiment. Because I remember I talked about uh, divorce like a while ago. And I said, why do you think divorce is so prominent in the Muslim society, blah, blah, blah. And that got a lot of engagement. So I said, let me do an experiment for Muslim Twitter. Let's see how quickly they eat it up. You know, <laughs> because they love talking about this kind of topic. Yeah. <laughs> and then I put that and then it's on like almost 100K views now on Twitter. And it's like, okay, well, it's working. It's not working as well as I hoped because no one's going on the website or anything like that. <laughs> But yeah, it was purely an experiment. So when are you get married? <laughs> one day, man, one day. But as a, as a digital nomad, you yeah. must have thought about when you have a family, it might not be sustainable. So I did it, man. Yeah, I can't lie. I was young and, you know, I, I still am. I still see myself as, uh, you know, I've got, inshallah, more years ahead of me than behind me. So I, I like the way I see marriage is I'd rather, I'm, I don't always actively go and seek it. Because I feel like if you actively go and seek something, something, you're always met with disappointment and it's just, just long. I prefer to continue building myself. And then the way I see it, she will be somewhere out there building herself and then we'll just meet somewhere. I don't know. Because um, then it's just easy to kind of focus on myself. <laughs> okay, just a um, quick... I knew that question was coming. Huh? I knew that question was coming. I was waiting for the right time. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a quick fire round before we finish. Yeah. Favourite food? If you don't say Somali food, I'll be disappointed. No, no, it's not, actually not. I'm sick of it. I eat it every day at home, so it's not Somali food. Um, cuisine, I'm basic, man, Turkish. Uh, it's still nice. Yeah, yeah. North London, right? That's Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, Green Lane. Yeah. Uh, Favourite TV show? Um, Doctor Who. Still number uh, one for me. I don't, I don't like Currently, Somali. it's horrible, but I, it, it, I would always say Doctor Who. Favourite book? Favourite book? Um... The four hour work week or the psychology of money? Favorite holiday destination? I get asked this quite a bit because I don't, I've got a few. I still say, I still say Morocco, man. Yeah. Uh, favorite day of the week? Mondays. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, mate. I appreciate it.